go ahead and get started by, by telling you about a, a movie that was made right around 26 years ago, and it's one of the greatest movies that was ever released. And so if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. It's called The Sandlot. The Sandlot is a story about friends. It's a story about baseball. It's a story about summer, innocent love, and adventure. One of my favorite scenes in, in the movie is the night of the fair. They all show up. They're excited. They're anticipating what will happen that night. A bit of freedom, a bit of the unknown. And one of the friends decides that he'll treat everybody to tickets. And so he gives them all their share of tickets. And another guy almost forgot. He had brought a special gift for all the guys. He pulls it out of his pocket. It's Big Chief Chaw. What do you do with it? They don't know. They've never seen it before, but they have high hopes. They have high anticipation that this will meet their needs. It will satisfy their desires and longings for fun and for joy. And the energy that they'll need to, 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 to just enjoy and soak up that night. With the mouth of chew and tickets in hand, they race off into the fairground. They all go straight to the, the tilt-a-whirl, the trabant. Get on it, they're excited, they feel satisfied, again anticipation, and I don't need to explain how that scene ends, but I will, because it's a lot of fun, no, I, I won't, I won't explain how the scene ends, but you can imagine what it would be like for an 11-year-old kid, 12-year-old kid to get a mouthful of tobacco and to get on the tilt-a-whirl after just eating a, a large dinner. It didn't end well for them and not for the others. But as they stumbled off of that ride, they're back out into the crowd. They realize that what they thought would fill them, what they thought would bring satisfaction to them, was ultimately the opposite. Quite the opposite. In fact, they were worse for the wear. The thing that they thought that would bring them joy actually brought them down. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you can even relate to this wanting something, not knowing what it is. I'll try this. What's that? I've never heard of Big Chief. Let's try it. Maybe it will bring that satisfaction, that level of joy into my life that I'm missing. Maybe you can relate to that. Uh, Maybe you can't. Maybe you're thinking, what were these guys thinking? What were they seeking? They were seeking a good time. They were seeking energy. They were seeking the cool factor. and They were seeking something. I'm sure all of us can relate to them in some form or fashion. Each of us this morning are, are seeking something. Or at least we have a, in our, in, at some point in, in, in our lives we've sought for something. The folks in the passage this morning that we're going to be reading about, I believe that they were seeking something. And not just, uh, not just in an obvious way but deep down that they were also longing for some, something to fill their life, something to bring them satisfaction, something to remove the anxiety and the angst that they had in their life. And so in John chapter 6, if you have your, your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, it should be on the screen this morning. I want to give you a little bit of background. We won't read the entire chapter. It's a, it's a really long chapter. It's packed full of some wonderful stuff. Uh, if we really wanted to just take our time and wring everything out, we'd be in John chapter 6 for weeks and weeks. Um, but uh, for the sake of the series, we'll move forward for our reading plan. 
But I do want to give you a little bit of a heads up. There's a crowd that is seeking Jesus. He's become high in demand for different reasons, and we'll look at those in just a moment. But it's this rabbi, this great teacher, he's doing miracles. He's providing gifts and things that others can't. So he's attracting this crowd, and crowds can be irregularly high because right now, at this point in time, in John chapter 6, it's the Passover. So Jews from all over the the ancient land are are gathering back in in Palestine. They're back in Israel, in Judah, or I'm sorry, in Jerusalem, for the Passover. A lot of -of out-of-towners looking for something to get into, following this rabbi, this teacher named Jesus. This particular man, Jesus was reported to have fed 5,000 men at one time, early on in John chapter 6. He feeds 5,000 men. Most scholars believe that it was far more than 5,000, that 5,000 men was just the men. Likely they each had a wife there too, or most of them. Each of them had a a child or two as well, and so most people think far more than 5,000. But this particular time, he, he feeds them, and they're so excited, they get worked up into a frenzy, Considering the Old Testament passages and extra-biblical passages as well, they think this is the Messiah. This is the prophet. Let's make him king right now. They begin to have different ideas as to what Jesus can do for them this very day. And as they make their plans, Jesus withdraws. Jesus gets out of there. Spends some time separate with God and in prayer. And in John chapter 26, or sorry, John chapter 6, verse 26, we'll pick up around that time. They're looking for Jesus. They're trying to find him. And here we go, John chapter 6, verse 26. The Bible says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, what, was, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so they said to him, Then, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What, what work do you perform? Our fathers, they, they ate manna in the wilderness, and as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet you do not believe. I'll skip down to verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets 
that they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. And this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed amongst themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, And I live because of the Father, so whosoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we again come to you recognizing that we need your spirit now. That you'd guide us into truth. You'd help us to understand what's been called a hard passage, a hard saying. God, we recognize, clearly displayed in this passage, that no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws. And all who are drawn, all who believe they will not be cast out, they will not be lost. We recognize your sovereignty in that draw, in that call. And we recognize your sovereignty in even understanding and comprehension. So we call out to you. We confess our dependence on you. And again, we ask that you would satisfy us this morning through the bread from heaven. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, this morning, we often attempt to satisfy our longings with things that only temporarily bring satisfaction and ultimately leave us empty and longing. Only in Jesus can we find true and lasting satisfaction. That's a fact. That's what the scriptures are teaching us this morning, that we often attempt to satisfy our longings with things that only temporarily bring satisfaction, but ultimately they leave us empty and longing. Only in Jesus Can we find true and lasting satisfaction? I believe that the scriptures, as we walk through quickly this morning, that we'll see that lifted up out of the text. That where we start, we'll end. As we walk through the passage this morning, we'll kind of take two stops, and those will have several stops along the way, but the first is this. We'll investigate the idea that the crowd was seeking. The crowd that seeks. The second stop that we'll make is the bread that satisfies. So the crowd that seeks and the bread that satisfies. First, let's look at the crowd that seeks. Satisfaction is the fulfillment of a need or want, the quality or state of being content, or so the dictionary tells me. It's the state of being content. Is it ever elusive? 
It doesn't matter how old you are this morning, how long you've been uh, even in Hagerstown, how long you've been on your own, whatever it is. You've experienced this. The elusiveness of satisfaction. Anxiety is on the rise and there's a growing sense of unfulfillment around the world. People are asking questions like, is there, is there more to life? Maybe even you're asking, you find yourself asking that. There's, as the weeks end, week after week, you ask yourself, is there more to life? You even say, am I enough? Am I, am I living up? Am I fulfilled? Am I satisfied? We look outside of ourselves for answers. And then we even eventually come back and turn inward is the answer to the longing of satisfaction, is it found within myself? We ask ourselves like this, am I enough? In the age of social media, we're plagued with just these types of questions, of comparison. How do you stack up against these people, or against this person, this family, against your family? There's all this comparison, and the question is asked often, am I tall enough? Am I short enough? Am I skinny enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I rich enough? Am I successful enough? Am I strong enough? Is my sexual orientation enough? Is my political affiliation, is it enough? We ask these questions and, and the answers that we receive are a bit conflicted. Depending on who we're talking to, depending on who we're asking, we will get a different answer. Friends and family often will affirm and give us the answer, yes, you are enough. Yes, you're, you're everything that you need. Everything that you would ever want, it's, it's right there, you've got it. And oftentimes when we go to social media and culture at large, it, we're told something quite different. Even as we investigate in our minds and we, we spend time alone, our minds tell us that we're not enough as well. And I'm here to, to, to tell you this morning that the truth is that you are not enough. You're not enough. You, you don't measure up. You never will. We, we never will on our own, in and of ourselves, be able to be satisfied with the way that we look or the situation that we find ourselves. No, not in and of ourselves. And right at the onset here, at the beginning, really, I want to make it clear to you that the, the Bible says that, but then also says this, that we are complete in Christ and that we truly can be satisfied. I don't want to leave that hopelessness hanging out there too long, that in Christ we can experience satisfaction. Not just a temporary satisfaction, but an eternal and a steady satisfaction. Recently, I was speaking with a lady, and I felt the need to share the gospel with her, and so I did. I, I wanted to confess to her that I, in and of myself, came to the point where I realized that I was broken. I was broken, and I needed something outside of myself. And I told her my testimony that I had found hope in my life through Jesus Christ and the work that he did on my behalf at the cross. And as I began to share the gospel more with her, she offered me this. I'm glad that you were able to finally realize that you had everything you needed within you the whole time. She missed the point. I, I made it clear, I thought, that in and of myself, I was broken full of anxiety, lacking satisfaction. But in Christ, I had found it. 
her response to me demonstrated that she believed that I had had it in me all along. Hunger is a common grace to us as humans because it causes us to begin to look outside of ourselves for fulfillment. On every single level, we are a people, we are creatures that are dependent on something other than us. And to my friend that offered me that encouragement, she's wrong. Even hunger, thirst, the need for community, all these things demonstrate to me and to you as well that you are not sufficient in and of yourselves. You're not. So as we consider this this crowd that's searching, as we think of this crowd that was following Jesus, they were searching for satisfaction. They were searching for something. What were they searching for? Maybe some of the similar things that we search for today. Maybe they, like you, are also searching for satisfaction. They come to the end and then realize that they in and of themselves are not enough. Maybe that's one of the things that made Jesus so attractive. He seemed like a man that had it together. He seemed like a man who knew what was going on. He spoke with authority. He seemed like he was somebody that you could actually lean on. Maybe that's why he was so attractive to so many in this crowd. But ultimately, you will come to the conclusion that you are not enough. As you finish looking inside of yourself, you begin to look outside discouraged, frustrated, you begin to look around and you say, all I ever wanted was Prince Charming. Is, is that too much to ask? Right? That's oh, all I ever wanted. I know I'm not perfect, but I need somebody outside of me that is, that I can lean on, that they can be my rock. Is it, is it too much to ask? The single guy, he's saying, all I want to be is married. That's all I want. I'll be satisfied if I had Prince Charming. I'd be satisfied if I was married. And we know how that works, those who are married just kidding. <laughs> but when you are married, then as a couple, you say, well, all we want is to have children. All, all we want is to get a, a house with, with two cars and a, a dog. This is what we want. It's all we want. And then we get that and we're satisfied for a moment, but it's fleeting. Like sand, uh, grains of sand, uh, sand through your hand, they slip away. The satisfaction that was so palpable that you could see and hold on to is now vanished. It's gone. And now you, you just want to have children. And so then you get those children. And it's like, yes, we've got the children. And now you're like, but if I could just get through this phase and get to the next phase, just get a little bit older, a little bit more established, a little bit more independent. And then you get to that stage. And what happens then? It's like, if we could just stop them, if they could stop growing, if we could even go back, right? Do you see how this works? We're never satisfied. We, we always are looking to the next phase in life. We're always looking for what these people, these relationships can bring into our lives. And when we get to that very place, thinking we'll be satisfied, we're not. So on the inside, in and of ourselves, are we enough? Can we bring, can we experience satisfaction dependent on ourselves? No, we cannot. We cannot. As we look outside of ourselves, at our spouses, at our, at our children, as our, at our neighbors, at our politicians, whoever it is, we look around and we come to the same conclusion that they are not enough as well. They're not enough as well. If you think about it, we, we, 
We've had some good neighbors, but for the most part, our neighbors don't measure up. We've had some good politicians, but for the most part, they don't measure up as well. We've had some good bosses, but even they had flaws, and they don't measure up as well. There never is going to be a teacher, a parent, a child, a co-worker that will truly measure up and bring satisfaction. Why? Because they like you. Though they may appear strong, they may desire strength, that they may desire independence, they don't have it either. They're broken people as well. So this crowd, they're frustrated with themselves likely, they're frustrated with those around them, recognizing that they can't bring satisfaction to them as well. And so there they are with Jesus, looking to Jesus saying, is he enough? I'm not enough. My friends and family aren't enough. Is Jesus enough? And so from the passage this morning in verse 26, we see that there's a a few different views or requests being made of Jesus. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. There was a group there that were saying to Jesus, Feed me. Feed me. They're asking of Jesus. They're following Jesus. A long crowd, hunting him down. A large crowd. And they're saying to him, What can you give me? What can you give me, Jesus? And this question is the very question that is often asked by the prosperity gospel movement. Kenneth, uh, I'm not going to try to say his last name. Yeah, actually, I am going to try to say it. Mubogwa. He offers this definition of the prosperity gospel. He says this. It's claiming... Uh, It's a gospel claiming freedom, and gospel is in quotes, claiming freedom from sickness, poverty, and all suffering on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. It's promising material, physical, and visible blessings for all who would embrace it. The prosperity gospel insists that God's will is for all his children to prosper here and now. But this gospel contains four critical distortions. And I want to list his, uh, his assessment here for you this morning. So he offers four critical distortions of the true gospel that are found in the prosperity gospel. And the first is this. The prosperity gospel, gospel offers a small God. The prosperity gospel offers a small God. It doesn't lead us to desire, to pursue, or to treasure Jesus. Instead, Jesus is regarded merely as the way you get more material things or worldly things, the things that you hunger for, that your flesh does. That's what the prosperity gospel promises you. That God effectively becomes your butler or your nanny. Whatever you long for. What do you desire? What do you ring a bell and ask Jesus to bring? That is your real God. That's your real God. If you come to Jesus asking him, what can you bring me? I'm hungry. I desire things. What can you bring me? You have a very small God. You have a puny God. These are the things that the world pursues. They're false gods. To preach that temporary and material blessings are the purpose of our salvation, it turns Christianity into idolatry and trades the glory of God for a cheap substitute so the number one distortion that we see in the prosperity gospel is this that it offers a very very small god and that's a distortion because god is not a small god 
The Bible doesn't teach a small God. The, God, the Bible doesn't teach of a God who answers to uh, the ringing of a bell. As if he's some servant of his people. Lowly servant. And while Jesus is the servant, while he did come to seek and to save, he does not stand by at our beckoning will, our beck and call, allowing us to, to, to lead him around and for him to go fetch our next trinket or satisfaction. That's not what the Bible teaches. Quite the opposite. The second thing that he offers, the second distortion of the true gospel found in the prosperity gospel is this, that it confuses our greatest need. It confuses our greatest need. And many of us will be helped by this this morning. Let me ask you this. What is humanity's greatest need? Some of you might think first, well, clean water, peace, love, less weapons, less guns, more education, access to, to, to better health care, whatever, fill in the blank, those those things are great. They're good and well. And we believe as Christians that God has called us in some form or fashion to, to, to help to bring some of those things to bear. But ultimately, our greatest need, it's not even close, is the forgiveness of sins. Romans chapter 1 reminds us that God is righteous and that we are sinful. Because of God's righteousness and because of our sinfulness, his just judgment stands against us. His wrath is upon us. And so the person that you know that's hungry and also an unbeliever, unrepentant of their sin, their greatest need is not a cheeseburger. Their greatest need is not a bottle of water. Their greatest need is not health care. Their greatest need is to be forgiven of their sins, is to be brought to the place where they would repent of their sins and turn to Christ with full dependence on him. God is angry. And his wrath burns against those who are his enemies. So it's not financial struggles, relationship stresses, career ambitions that have not been fulfilled. None of those are first priority. But the prosperity gospel says that they are. It elevates and pushes sin, puts, pushes sin to the side and it elevates our physical needs. Your sin problem, it is the priority. It goes on to say that the third distortion the prosperity gospel brings to the true gospel is that it empties the gospel of its power. It empties the gospel of its power. Many people are suffering and struggling with financial or, or health issues. We all have material needs. We all have desires. We all have things that we'd like to see take place in our life. And it's, it's an appealing message, is it not? That if you come to Jesus, you can have your best life now. Is that not appealing? Come to Jesus you can have your best life now. It sounds good, but I'm telling you right now, it's an inferior message, and it's not a message of the Scriptures. As we look throughout Scripture, we see time and again, those who would come to Christ would be put to death. They would suffer and bleed and lose friends, experience pain unmentionable because they came to Christ. We'll see, well, where's the attraction in that? Where's the, where's the power in that? Isn't this a better option that, that, we, that we come to Christ and we have our best life now? The power of the gospel is that God can actually save you forever by changing your status from a, status from a hell-bound subject of wrath 
to an eternally justified child of God. And in church, that is far more powerful than being able to feed 5,000 people on, on the side of a hill or 12,000. It's far more important that the power of the gospel, that he can take something, somebody that is dead in their sins and give them life. He can take literally an addiction out of the heart of a man and bring them back to life. That's the power of the gospel. It's so, so much greater than whatever else we need, whatever physical desire that you have. This is the power of the gospel. And prosperity gospel distorts it gives us a weaker lesser gospel it's not a gospel at all as Paul would say and lastly and ultimately this is a a distortion of the prosperity gospel it robs God of his glory prosperity gospel robs God of his glory the most basic mistake that every person makes in their life is to think that they are the center of the universe it's the most basic mistake that we make we begin making that mistake, right, as we realize when we cry, a bottle is inserted into our mouth, right? And that when we come into a room, when we wake up, everybody smiles and everybody looks at us and we begin to be trained that this world really does revolve around us, right? And for a short time, it is really cute to treat our children that way. But then at the end of the, at the, end of the day, we call it being spoiled. But really what's happening is we've, we've trained our children The world revolves around them. They believe this lie. And then their entire lives are uh, reprogrammed into thinking that everything is about them. God is their butler. Their brothers and sisters are there to serve them. Everybody in life is there to bring peace and satisfaction to them. As if they're King Julian off of uh, Madagascar. The truth of the matter is God is the center of the universe. That his gravity, his weight brings everything in subjection to him. It's foolishness for us to think anything different. His, his glory includes his infinite attributes of holiness, righteousness, love, justice, grace, mercy, purity, beauty, power, and wisdom. And the glad duty that, that comes with being alive in this world is that God created you for his glory To bring glory to him. That's why you were made. John Piper says it this way. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. When we are most satisfied in him, we bring God the most glory. Prosperity gospel is a false gospel that is sending millions to hell They see God as a butler, sin as a bad habit, wealth as God's chief blessing, and themselves as their point of existence. And it allows man to sit on the throne, and it often doesn't last long. Because even as I describe it, it might sound pleasant for a short time, but that's the point. It never brings lasting satisfaction. There's always something else that we need. There's always something else that we want. There's always something else that we don't have. The heart of man is never, never satisfied. One of the dangers in the prosperity gospel is we we say things like this. I read, I prayed, I, I attended church, and she still left me. He still died. I still lost my job. 
We come to the conclusion, therefore, that religion doesn't work, that Jesus doesn't work. And that's the danger as Christians in the U.S. export the prosperity gospel all around the world. Those who are lost and living in darkness are even far more lost as they've tasted and seen the gospel and come to the conclusion that it doesn't work. God never promised that he would meet those types of needs, that he would be there to give us BMWs and new cars and meet all of the little whims and be our butler. He never promised that. He promises something far greater than that, far more beautiful than that. Verse 27, Jesus tells the people, don't work for food that spoils, that that perishes, that goes away, that doesn't last. He's rebuking them for their materialistic notions of the kingdom. He's rebuking them for this prosperity gospel. Stop seeking the things that will perish, that go away. There's, a, there's something better. There's something that actually satisfies. There's a crowd that looks to Jesus and demands for him to feed them. There's a crowd that looks to Jesus, though, and demands to be entertained. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're not sucked into the prosperity gospel, believing that God's going to meet every single need that you want and and give you every single desire that that your little heart has. Maybe you're stuck in this entertain me phase. They ask of Jesus, what can you show me? What kind of signs do you have? Impress me. Jesus does use signs, but they miss the point of the signs. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But they're there just to see the magic trick. Many of them are. Many of them are there just to be entertained. So they come to Jesus and they say, hey, what's on? What's new? Nothing's on. I'll watch, I'll watch Jesus until something better comes on. It seems like it's just a rerun. It's just Jesus saying that I'm supposed to believe in him and to lay my life down and repent of my sin. And That's not that exciting. But I'll watch it until I'll, something better comes on. Right? A young girl was walking through a parking lot with her parents and she spotted a car in the parking lot with many other cars around it that it was, a, it was a particular car that her and her family had always dreamed, especially her and her father. They'd always talked about that car. They loved it. It was iconic. They've always wanted one. And they go up to it, and the, and the, the daughter's just, just, just in love with this car, and the dad says to her, hey, he looks around, and he says, why don't you get in it? Just open the door and sit down in the seat. The girl's like, what? Dad would never do this? Why would he tell me to do this? And she doesn't want to do it, but she does, and she doesn't. And she ends up opening the door. She sits down in the car. The dad sneaks around to the other side, and he opens the door, too, and he sits in, and they begin to look. And she's nervous. She's about to cry. She doesn't know what. She's looking around. Is a cop going to catch us? Are we going to go to jail? And the dad says, hey, check this out. He pulls a key out of his pocket, and he gives the, the key to her, and he says, hey, why don't you start it up? She panics. How did you get a key? Why do you have that key to this car? If we start this car up, we'll go to jail. She's freaking out. She's excited. Many of you already have seen it as the father. How could the father have the key in his pocket? How could he do this magic trick? You see, she missed the whole point of the sign. What was the the father saying when he pulls the key out of his pocket and gives it to her? He's saying this. It's our car, honey. It's our car. We've always wanted it, and now we have it. Right? She missed the whole point. She began at the end to, to be clued into the reality that her father had purchased this car. You see, this crowd on the side of the hill, as they see Jesus do this magic trick, as it were, and feed all of these people in a, in a manner, in a fashion that was, would have been impossible. Even, it would have been an, almost impossible if you had got a caterer to do it. 
After this miracle is taking place, they've, they don't even see the point. They don't see the, the significance. They're just stuck on the entertainment. This guy can pull rabbits out of a hat. It goes back to the fact that the, these folks that wanted to be entertained, they're stuck in the same place. They're almost the same as those who are saying, feed me. Almost the same place. They they, they don't even realize their greatest need. You see, when you see somebody do a magic trick like that, or a miracle like that, and you think your greatest need is hunger, or greatest need is entertainment, what do you do? Well, you say, do it again. When you come face to face with the maker, the creator of this universe, and you see the significance of a sign that says, I am the I am. I am that I am. When you see that, we don't ask for another magic trick. We don't ask for a loaf of bread. What do we ask for? We ask for forgiveness of sins. They missed the whole point. They didn't understand what was taking place. They just wanted it to be entertained. They enjoyed the the sign. They missed the point. You might say, well, at least they're following him. There's a problem with that. What happens when the miracles end? What happens? You you might have been to a magic show before. Maybe you don't even know how it happens, and you were surprised the first time. You enjoyed it the second and third time. The fourth, fifth, sixth time, you're not there. You've already seen it. It's already gone. It's over. There's no pleasure. There's no joy. There's no attraction in that. You've seen it. It's old news. And so what happens if you're following Jesus, if you're following him just because it's interesting, just because you enjoy the relationships and because you enjoy the fellowship and because every once in a while he, he does a miracle, if that's the reason why you're following Jesus, it won't last long. It won't last long. So free food goes away, miracles go away. What next? Well, there's another group in the crowd. Look down at verse 28. This is the DIY crowd. It's the do-it-yourself crowd. And they say to Jesus, what what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus, you're you're the great teacher. You're the one sent from God. What must we do to do the works of God? They call out to him. I want to confess to you this morning, I'm kind of a, a do-it-yourself kind of guy. I like to fix things myself. At least I, I try. Uh, if, I, if I fix it, I have a good day. If I don't fix it, I'm pretty disappointed for a long time. And I try again. But it, really, my attempt to fix things is born out of necessity, right? It costs money to take things to a repairman. So I try my best to do it myself. And, and I went... From I needed to know how to refill a lead pencil, that's it, to now I need to know how to change the belt on a dryer. I need to know how to reshingle a leaking roof. I need to know how to replace brakes on a van. And I need to know how to what, fill in the blank. It's, I went from I, I just need to know how to put more lead into a pencil. And now I need to do all these other things. You become a, a father and a husband and a homeowner and all these things at the same time. And so you kind of have to learn. Thank God for the internet and for YouTubes. Right? So you're, maybe you as well are a do-it-yourselfer and you come to Jesus and you're like, what must I do? What work can I do? 
Is there there an instructable, is there a YouTube video that I can go to, something something on Google that will help me to understand maybe Pinterest, how I can get to the place where I can receive forgiveness of sins, how I can get to the place where I can truly experience satisfaction in the deepest reaches of my heart. These people are saying, we're here. Can we work for this bread? Can we earn it ourselves? How do we make it? Where do we get the seeds? Verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly I say unto you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. And then they said to him, What what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him, Whom he has sent. Verse 27 makes it clear. The Son of Man will give it. It's not something that you can work yourself. There's no do-it-yourself guide. It's a gift that God gives through his Son. Maybe you feel yourself closer to self-sufficiency than others, and so that bothers you. Yeah, that guy over there, he needs more help than me. But Jesus, I'm so close to self-satisfaction. I'm so close to self-sufficiency. Couldn't you just give me that tip so I could go over the edge myself? You see, I'm I'm closer than the rest. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe maybe you're saying, hey, I'm not interested in a free food. I don't want a handout. I'm not easily entertained by miracles. Jesus, I just want you to give me just a little bit so I can earn this myself. And Jesus says, you have to believe. And this is the work that we do. it's simple. It's believe. It's not work at all. That word work is interesting. It can actually mean labor, but it can also just mean clamoring for, desiring for. Almost like baby birds, like they're working up a sweat, right? Their hearts are beating so fast, and all they're doing is just crying out for their mommy. What are they doing? They're believing that their needs will be met and their satisfaction will come through their mother. And that's our work, for us to believe. And it's not work at all. When we relent because we've had enough and we actually come to Jesus and receive him as our food, we are saying to him that I am not enough, that you guys, you're not enough, but Jesus, he is enough. He's the only bread that can truly satisfy. He alone can satisfy. So that's the final section this morning. We looked at the, the crowd that seeks. We're all in that crowd. Then we also see that there's a bread that satisfies, that actually lasts eternally. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3 says this. This is a wonderful passage for you to write down and, and revisit. Isaiah 55, 1 through 3 says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not even bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. What a beautiful passage. Come, buy bread. You don't have money, you don't need it. Come and have good food. Why are you spending the money that you do have on something that doesn't fulfill, that doesn't satisfy? 
Jesus is saying here, in the Old Testament even, through, through the, about the covenant, that he too will meet our thirst, that he too will meet our needs. So why do we look to ourselves? Why do we look to others and even to our work to find satisfaction? We know that these things lead us empty, leave us empty, and they leave us broken. I'm like squints stumbling off the, the, the tilt we're after the ride, we're, we're worse for the wear. Not, we didn't find satisfaction. But in Christ, we truly can find lasting, eternal satisfaction. We, we clamor for physical needs to be met, for relationships to be restored and, and even created. We even, we even desire that the moral laws be kept in our hearts. But these desires, even if they're fulfilled, they'll leave us hungry again in the wilderness. They don't last. Verse 48 says in, in chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. They ate that bread, that manna that God provided, that physical bread, and they died. And this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that you may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread, Jesus says, that came down from heaven. And if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for life that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. See, the Israelites, they ate manna in the wilderness and then they died. They, They ate a physical bread from heaven and they died. It didn't satisfy, it didn't sustain them. But then Jesus offers a spiritual bread and he says, if you take this bread, if you come and eat this bread, you will not die. I think it's worth mentioning here this morning as we consider the communion cup, the communion table, that the, that, that the communion cup, it, it doesn't actually, or let's ask the question, does it contain the blood of Jesus? And does the bread actually become Jesus' flesh? This is a, a, a statement or a phrase, uh, a term used um, in Catholic, Roman Catholic churches that's transubstantiation. That when the priest would bless the bread and the wine, that it would, it would become the body and blood, literally, of Jesus Christ. And so the question is, when we take communion as Christians, are we actually taking the physical blood and bread or and flesh of Jesus into ourselves? And the answer is clearly no. What Jesus is pointing to in this moment, he's not even speaking of the Lord's table. He's not speaking of communion. He's but he is teaching us of a great theological truth that undergirds the table and it's the idea of union with Christ. You see, the, the communion table, the Lord's supper hadn't even been instituted at this time in John chapter 6. It's not till some time later. So he's not speaking of, 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 of that. And, and Catholics, they're interpreting, interpreting this passage literally. But it's not meant to be. And I want you to, don't go by my words. Let's go by Jesus' words himself. He's the one that told us that we needed to eat his flesh and drink his blood. John chapter 6, 63 says, The Spirit gives life, and the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Jesus specifically states that his words are spirit. He's using physical concepts to talk about a spiritual truth. Consuming physical food and and drink, it supports our physical bodies. And, And contrastly, there is a spiritual food for our spirits, for our spiritual side. So eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood, they're symbols of a fully and completely reception of Christ and his message into our lives. 
Jesus is God's provision of deliverance from damnation. Just as the manna had to be uh, consumed to preserve the life, uh, lives of the Israelites, so Jesus had to be consumed for salvation to be received. If you wanted the physical benefits of what God was providing in the wilderness, you would have to take that into yourself. You'd actually have to consume it. It's the same way physically. This is the picture that Jesus is teaching us this morning. It's deeply connected, as I said a moment ago, with this idea of being in Christ. One theologian says to be in Christ, he defines it this way. It says it's an expression of intimate interrelatedness. That's the same as the air. It's like saying it's the air that we breathe or it's the water that we swim in. Imagine that. It's the water that we swim in as a fish. It's both the water that you are in and it's the water that is in you. Completely encapsulated. This is again and again, this, is, this idea of being in Christ is used to speak of the Christian. Eight times in the book of Galatians, 34 times in the book of Ephesians, 18 times in the book of Colossians. This idea of being in Christ. Christ being in you. This, this picture here of being in Christ answers the question of how. How does God save How does God forgive? How does God give life? How does God bring those back from the dead? How does God move? How does he heal? He does all of those things in Christ. It also answers the question about where. Where are the sons and daughters of God? Where are his saints? Well, they're in Christ. They're They're like that fish swimming in the water. The water is in them, and they are in the water. One pastor says of of this idea of being in Christ, he says, the defining reality of my life is that I am in him and he is in me. My life is not just about listening to the teachings of Jesus and trying to imitate them. Rather, the resurrection power of Jesus dwells in me via the Holy Spirit and I am in him and he is in me. And I am in him and he is in me. This is the rhythm of my life, so I am able to live with courage. I am able to live with joy. Regardless of the highs and lows of my life, I am steadfast because I am in him and he is in me. Jesus is teaching us that if all is lost and if we suffer in this world every day of our lives and yet we are in Christ, we have everything. We have everything. Do you believe that this morning? This is what Jesus is teaching. And at the end of this passage, we're going to look at it in just a moment, people leave. And you say, well, I always thought they left because he said something weird. Yeah, some left for that. But many understood it. And they rejected it. Many said, no, we're just here for a snack. We're just hungry, literally. We're just physically hungry. If you're not going to meet that need, we're out. And some said, we were just bored. Jesus, if you're not going to do any more miracles, if you're not going to entertain us, then we're out. Some, they realized exactly what Jesus was saying. They said, we we, we can't submit to this. I'm not going to give up everything else to chase after that one thing. I'm not going to chase after being in Christ. I'm not going to do it. It's not worth it. Well, what about you? Is it worth it that you be in Christ? Is that worth everything to you? Do you truly believe that if you were to be in Christ but lose everything else, that you truly would have everything and that it would be worth it? Could you be satisfied if everything that you wanted was taken from you? 
but Christ? Could you still experience eternal and lasting satisfaction? Church, there's no final satisfaction in material earthly goods. There's no lasting satisfaction in you and of yourself. There is no permanent satisfaction in your relationships. Only in Jesus do we find bread that lasts and that is eternal. John is calling us to believe that. The whole book, why was it written? So that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life through his name. Listen, when the food is gone and the fun is over, the true disciples remain and together they feast on the words of eternal life. We often attempt to satisfy our longings with things that only temporarily bring satisfaction but ultimately leave us empty and longing. Only in Jesus can we find true and lasting satisfaction. Only in Jesus. A moment ago we we talked about the Lord's table and what what it actually represents it's not actually the blood of Christ. It's not, the, it's not the, 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 the flesh of Christ. He's not sacrificed anew and afresh this morning. The sacrifice was once and done, effective. So we don't have to do it again. We don't have to, but this is a rem- memorial for us this morning. As we look at the, the, the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior and, and all that it represents. And it's a picture that when we take that juice, and when we take that bread into ourselves that we're nourished by it, and that Christ is in us and that we are in Christ. If you're a believer this morning, I want to invite you to participate. You don't have to be a member of Hagerstown Church to take part in the communion with us. But you do have to be a believer. You do have to be in Christ. And so let me say this. If you're not a believer in Christ, if you've not repented of your sin, if you've not turned from your sins and placed your faith in Jesus Christ, his work on the cross, then abstain. There's nothing for you to, get, to gain here. There's, there's no pleasure or satisfaction that you can receive in this table, at this table, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a believer. These elements will not save you. They're not the body and blood of Christ, nor will they ever be. They won't make you right before God. It's just a symbol. I don't say it's just a symbol as to demean it, but it's, that's all it is. It points to a substance. It signifies something far greater that is a reality that we know in part now, and one day we will know face-to-face clear as we see each other. So in the space between uh, that, what we look forward, we celebrate what's behind us and what's in front of us with this meal. We take communion together. We're physically taking that symbol into ourselves, and we're nourished spiritually by it. Christians, when you take the bread and when you drink the cup, consider that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed, that he paid the price for your sins. This table is the symbol of him having taken all the wrath that we deserved. Everything that was against us, he took it all in himself. And the only thing that he left, the thing that he replaced it with, was the affection, the love, and the grace that comes from the Father. So I want to close Right here. Are you thirsty? Are you empty? Come and drink these living waters. Are you tired, broken, peace unspoken? Rest beside these living waters. Christ is calling. Find refreshing at the cross of living waters. Lay your life down, all the old gone. Rise up in these living waters. Love, forgiveness. Vast and boundless, Christ is. He is our living waters. These living waters, they truly 
satisfy. Would you pray with me? Father, we bow our heads this morning as we remember that Christ bowed his head for us and that he gave up his spirit. Reverence and respect and awe and adoration of the work of Christ. We pray. In Christ, your words and your cross, they remind us the heinousness of our sin and the, and the true debt that you paid. Spirit, this morning, we pray that you would fill us and that as we worship you in this moment, that we would bring you true honor, that the triune God would bring us comfort to each soul here this morning. Spirit, that you would draw those who are far from you this morning. God, those who are prideful, we pray that you would crush them. Those who are broken, we pray that you'd lift them up and repair. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus.